God, we love what you're doing here. Um, Lord, we love the, the kindness that is filled with this congregation. Um, but we pray, Lord, for all the churches across the country and across the world, Lord, would that we may be a display of, of really the power of the gospel that can take people with differences, whether it's beliefs or, or skin color, and that you, uh, by your grace, can unite us. And Lord, that we would lean into that. And God, we pray as we look at your word here this morning, Lord, that your word would move in power today. Lord, I pray as we sit underneath it, Lord, that you'd give us open hearts to receive it. Lord, help us to move all of the distractions out of our minds, Lord, that we might hear from you today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to be in the first uh, four verses today. So I'm going to read this and then we'll dive into it. The Word of God reads this way. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. That the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we begin uh, this sermon series that we're going to really be in over the next couple of months, as I was praying and, and studying this book, I, I was just wondering um, what many of you um, think about as it relates to the book of Nehemiah. I, I was wondering, I, I wonder what you know about Nehemiah. I wonder if for some of us, if we were really honest, that when we think about the book of Nehemiah, all we really think about is that it's just this obscure Old Testament book, and it's the book maybe that you skip over in order to get to a more practical book like Psalms or maybe Proverbs or even Song of Solomon. And it's just kind of in the Old Testament, um, but, but I haven't really taken a deep dive in studying it. Or, or maybe others of us, when you think about Nehemiah, what comes to your mind is that, oh, that was the book that my, that my former church or my older church growing up used to, to launch a, a building campaign or, or to do some, some sort of children's wing edition. And, and so when I think about Nehemiah, all I think about is that the church is about to ask me for more money. Uh, or I wonder if some of us, when you think about Nehemiah, you, you kind of think about him in terms of he's the, the Old Testament Bob the Builder. He's kind of the, the Jewish contractor who's building things left and right, and, and that's kind of all that you think about. I really wonder, I was praying, I wonder what you know about Nehemiah. I wonder if you know what role it plays in God's redemptive historical narrative. I wonder if you know why Nehemiah is even in the Bible. And I wonder if you have a, a theological framework for understanding this book. See, one of my tasks as a your lead pastor is to make sure that, that I'm teaching the whole counsel of God, and that includes the Old Testament. And yet I wonder if, uh, if for some of us at least, we are so strong on our knowledge of the New Testament, and I wonder if we're maybe a little bit light on our knowledge of the Old Testament. It's kind of like this 
this imbalanced bodybuilder who's got huge biceps and, and huge shoulders and huge chest, but he's got, uh, you know, really, really skinny uh, kind of legs, you know, these toothpicks for the legs. I wonder if that's true of us, then we may look at some books in the Old Testament like an imbalanced bodybuilder looks at the leg press in the gym, where he looks at it and he's like, that's probably helpful in some way, but I'm unsure of how to exactly to use it, right? And I wonder if that's, that's honestly how some of us feel about some of the books in the Old Testament. We look at them and we say, that's probably helpful in some way, but I'm really unsure of how to use it. I'm unsure of how it's practical, how it's going to impact my life. And so we just kind of skip over certain books of the Bible. And if that's true, A, it's really hard to admit, but B, we're, we're missing out on the treasures of God's Word. And we believe all of this is inspired, all of it is useful for correction, for correction and for equipping us. And the danger is, is that we might kind of skip over some books of the Bible. We may even get to the book of Nehemiah here, and we look at these first three verses, and we think, how is this really practical for me? And we're tempted to to just skip over it. Let's get to the prayer. You know, Nehemiah starts this prayer in verse 4 and 5 and finishes chapter 1. Let's get there, because that's when it gets practical, We pray, Nehemiah is praying, and so we're going to learn some things there. We'll look at that next week. The danger is, is that you miss these first three verses that really lay the foundation for why this book is even practical for us in 2020, that there are things in here that we need to know that that really brings out the significance and the weight of this book. And yet the danger is just to skip over it. We look at these first couple verses and you wonder, what in the world is the month of Chislev? Or why does it say the 20th year? The 20th year of what? What is the significance about Susa the citadel? Who is Hananiah? Why does it say Judah and not Israel or Jerusalem? What exile is it referring to? What's this remnant all about? What's the significance of the gates being destroyed and and the walls being in ruins? See, all kinds of questions that if we just skip over these verses, like so many of us do, we're going to really miss the foundation of this entire book. And so that's why we're going to spend really uh, this whole morning on these first couple of verses, and we're just going to lay a foundation for this book. And the way that I want to do that is by answering three questions this morning. The first question is, where are we in Old Testament history? So we're going to do a little bit of a recap. Secondly, we're going to answer the question, who wrote the book of Nehemiah and what do we know about him? And then thirdly, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at why is Nehemiah significant for College Park Fishers, soon-to-be Pennington Park Church in 2020. All right, so let's look at this first question. Where are we in Old Testament history? And what we're going to do here is we're going to look at this map and this graph of kind of doing a little bit of a recap. You can lower that screen, guys, in the back just so that you guys have a little bit of familiarity on where we are and why it's important. And I'm really just going to jump in here uh, around 1050 BC and do a little bit of a recap on Old Testament history because it's really important. I'm going to start in kind of what's been known as the golden age of Israel, right? Uh, right here. 
Um, my laser, there we go, right here in 1050 BC. This is when King David is on the throne. Israel has a kingdom. It has a king. It is an established regional power of the world. That's why it's kind of the, the golden age of Israel. King David reigns for 40 years. Solomon, his son, reigns for an additional 40 years. And this is really the apex of Israel's power. Uh, they're not only powerful, but they also have great wealth and prosperity. This is really the sweet time of Israel's history. But not only are they powerful, not only do they have prosperity, but they have a, a time in which they were religiously pure, spiritually pure. In fact, Solomon spends about 20 years building this incredible temple for the people of God to worship in. And what's really significant during this time is that they are occupying and defending the land that God had promised their forefathers, that they do a really good job keeping the other nations out from this land in order to ensure that the purity of God's people are intact. Basically, they're, they're keeping out the idols and the sin and the gods from all these other nations. That's really important for the Old Testament because the way that God put on display his glory and his holiness was seen in the set-apartness or the holiness of his people. And so that's why he wanted the, the separation from all the other nations is to ensure that God's people were pure. Well, we know about uh, King David's sin, we know about Solomon's sin, and that leads into the nation of Israel splitting into two different kingdoms. That we have the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and then we have the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. Now, the northern kingdom does not do very well at all. They have evil king after evil king after evil king. And despite all these warnings from God through the prophets, uh, we have in 722 BC the Assyrians who rise to the power over the world, basically. They overcome uh, the northern kingdom and, and they put those Israelites into captivity and, and even deport them all over the, the Assyrian uh, uh, empire. Well, the southern kingdom does a little bit better than the northern kingdom. They have good king followed by bad king, good king followed by bad king, and they hang on a bit longer than the northern kingdom. They last until about 586 B.C. when the Babylonians now are ruling kind of the world, and they take over Judah, and they deport uh, all the Israelites through the Babylonian empire. And then after the Babylonians, it's now the Persians who rise to power. And that's exactly who is in power during the book of Nehemiah. Now, all of this was not really a surprise to God's people. Again, this is something that God, through the prophets, had been warning them of, that if they don't repent, if they don't turn back to God, God's going to raise up these other nations to come and, in a sense, punish and discipline them in the hopes that they would repent and turn back to God. But something really interesting happens at the end of the book of 2 Chronicles. Again, this is when Persia is in power. Um, God actually presses upon the heart of the king of Persia, King Cyrus at the time, and he presses upon his heart to release some of the Jews, this remnant, to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. It's kind of this amazing kind of movement of God in his heart, and he does it. And so this remnant goes back and begins to rebuild the temple. 
Well, all of that is exactly what the book of Ezra centers upon. And the reason why that is significant is because in a lot of ancient manuscripts, uh, they would have actually Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. Or or Nehemiah is basically the sequel to Ezra. That that things are occurring in Ezra and Nehemiah that are happening simultaneously in history. In fact, they're, they're kind of teammates. That Ezra is the priest, Malachi is the prophet, and then Nehemiah is, in a sense, kind of the political leader of God's people. And so they kind of form uh, the, the, this, this kind of um, this team in order to restore God's people in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is, uh, is the last historical book in the Old Testament, right? These are things that are really the last things that go on before the 400 years of silence before Jesus Christ is born. I point that out because sometimes, you know, we look, well, Esther comes after Nehemiah. Well, even though that's true in our canon, the events in Esther actually occur in between about Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. And so what we have in Nehemiah is really the setting of the stage biblically of what Jesus eventually is born into. So just wanted you to be aware of where we are um, in Old Testament history because that's going to um, kind of impact the way that we read and the way that we, we study Nehemiah as some of the last things that go on in the Old Testament before the intertestamental, intertestamental uh, time period. So that's the first question. The second question is who wrote this book? Um, it, the, the author of this book is Nehemiah. Real shocker there. Nehemiah uh, wrote this, and, and the time period here is from 445 to 425 BC. And if you look at verse 1 here, we are really introduced to Nehemiah right off the bat. And we're going to need to get used to Nehemiah because this book centers on, on his leadership, on his activity in leading the people of God back to Jerusalem and thus fulfilling God's promise of bringing his people back to the land. This book is really about Nehemiah helping God's people rebuild the walls, reestablish the temple, and rededicate his people in this spiritual revival. And Nehemiah, what I love about Nehemiah is that he's really just an ordinary guy. I mean, he's a, he's a lay person, if you want to put it in kind of our terms. He's not the priest. Uh, he's not the, the prophet like Ezra and Malachi. He's just a lay person with great leadership skills that God uses to alter the history of God's people. Now, what we know about Nehemiah is, according to verse 11, he was the cupbearer to the king. Now, this is King Artaxerxes, and the 20th year in verse 1 refers to the 20th year of his reign as he's reigning over, uh, over Persia. Now, having this job as being the cupbearer is like one of my dreams because what he would do, and, and you have to kind of live on the edge and, and kind of enjoy risk, but what he would do is he would taste or drink anything before the king would eat or drink anything, okay, to make sure it wasn't poisonous, to make sure it wasn't sour, and so this guy is eating and drinking some of the best food and, and drinks in, in all of the world, okay? Now, he's, he's risking his life every single time he does it, but if you enjoy food that much, then that's kind of the job for you. And so he has this job, which means that he has influence. He's got the king's ear. He's literally with the king all of the time. 
And so what we know about Nehemiah is he has this strategic job, but he's also in a strategic place. If you notice in verse 1, it says that he's in Susa, the citadel. Now, Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire. This would be kind of the the Washington, D.C. in our day. And so he's in a strategic uh, location. He has a strategic job, and God uses him in incredible ways to bring about this revival in God's people. I love this book. This book reads so well. It's this really drama-filled historical narrative with so much tension and opposition and so many things that for us, we can get lost in the narrative, but it also has practical implications for us today. And that's what I'm really excited about, thinking about where we are uh, as College Park Fishers, soon to be Pennington Park Church, where God has us in this season and what God did with, with his own people in the time of Nehemiah. And so this third question that I want to answer is, why is Nehemiah so significant for us right now, right? We've got so many different books of the Bible that we could have selected to kind of study and, and read through, and we're just a couple of months away from transitioning into our new building, and I thought this would be a perfect book to study. Let me give you a couple of reasons why we're in this book. Number one is that Nehemiah will help keep our mission central. He will help keep our mission central. Much of what occurs in this book is Nehemiah leading God's people to accomplish the building of the walls of Jerusalem. And it's amazing to see the parallels because we have been in this process as a church, watching the physical walls of our church being built over the last year. And so there there are so many parallels, but one thing that I want to kind of keep our eye on and keep our hearts sensitive to that just as it was true in Nehemiah and the people of God 2,500 years ago, I believe it's true for us today that, that God wants to build something much more significant than just the physical walls of our church today in College Park Fishers. That I believe that God wants to do a significant work. He wants to build something that has implications beyond the walls of our church And even inside the walls of our church, inside the walls of our own hearts, that for us, as we're in this exciting season, we can uh, allow our hearts to get more excited about the brick and the mortar, that we can almost lose sight about what God wants to do in building something in our own hearts, that what God wants to do is to create this hunger and this desire for his glory and for his word to continue to spread throughout our own church. See, at first glance, it it appears that this book is really about a reformation of brick and mortar. But I think what we're going to learn is that by God's grace, there is a greater reformation that takes place in the heart's of God's people. And I think that God wants to do that kind of work in in our own hearts in this particular season. So Nehemiah is going to help keep our mission central because our mission is not brick and mortar. Our our mission is not to, to get a physical building established. When we walk into that building in just a couple of months, it's not going to be this sense of we finally have arrived. Now we can finally do ministry. Now we can finally, you know, preach the gospel. Like that's not our mission. Our mission is to know Jesus and to make him known to others. That's what we're about. 
And so Nehemiah is going to help protect our hearts from getting more excited about the building than, than about knowing Jesus and making him known. And so that's the first reason we're in this book. The second, though, is that Nehemiah will remind us of the sufficient and authoritative nature of God's Word. I think in, in very few other places in the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 8 is going to show us just how powerful and authoritative and sufficient God's Word actually is. I can't wait to get to chapter 8. I'm going to have to kind of pump the brakes in my own heart and not tweak the preaching calendar to get there next week. Um, because what we see is just this incredible scene where you have like almost all of God's people are gathered together in this worship service. And Ezra the priest is there. And the people say, Ezra, bring out the book. Bring out the scriptures. And Ezra literally just reads the scriptures for hours on end just reads it. And the response of God's people is that they are so moved, they are so convicted that they can't stop crying, that they can't stop weeping at the powerful and authoritative nature of God's word being spoken out. There is such an awe and a reverence of God's word being proclaimed because in Nehemiah 8, they, are, they have this, this holy expectation. They are hearing the voice of God being spoken over them as God's word is being proclaimed. And, and it is so powerful that, that the king of Persia even notices uh, the way that God's people view the scriptures. And, and he even speaks to Ezra in chapter 7, verse 25, the king of Persia, in, in talking about the scriptures says, the wisdom of your God, which you possess, or, or literally it's translated, the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand. You have this foreign, godless king of Persia who notices there is something different about the scriptures, something that, that, that is out of this world because of the way that God's people view it with such reverence and with such awe. And it's so convicting for us. And this is really, this is part of the reason why one of our core values is centered on the authority of God's word. This is why we preach through books of the Bible, because we believe the only thing that is powerful enough to change us and transform us is the word of God. This is all we got. And according to the king of Persia, a foreign king, it is in your hands this is what you possess. And the question, though, for us to consider is, yes, we have it. It's in our hands. But is it authoritative in your life? Is it central in your life? Do you have a reverence about the Word of God? When you open it up, do you have this expectation that I am going to hear from the living God right now through these, through these words as if he were standing right next to me? See, that, that is the place that I'm praying that each and every one of us gets to when we open up this book, that when we read, thus saith the Lord, that we actually believe it, that it has that kind of weight to it. So the problem, the problem for God's people has never really been about the availability of God's word. We've had it. The, the, the question, though, has been, is it central, is it sufficient, and is it authoritative? See, finally, when the leaders of God's people place God's word at the center, 
that's when transformation starts to occur. And I think we need to be reminded of that, that when we think about how do people change, how are people transformed, it's not about watering down the Word of God, it's not about making the Word of God hip or relevant, but it's proclaiming the Word of God as it is that will actually lead to transformation. And I think that we're going to be anchoring our church in that reality more and more. So Nehemiah is going to show us that. Number three here, though, another reason we're going to be in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah will challenge us in how we respond to personal and corporate sin. That we're going to be reminded here that the reason why God's people were in captivity is because of their disobedience and their rebellion against God, their ignorance of the Sabbath, their taking of foreign wives, their neglect of the poor and the marginalized, and even their, their worship of these other idols. So Nehemiah is going to show us how elevating perhaps even good things to ultimate things is really just a replacement of what is ultimate, which is the adoration and the praise of God in his glory. And so the people of God wrestled with that, struggle with that 2,500 years ago, but that's, that's also a struggle that you and I have. Like we have our own idols that we wrestle with. We have our own struggles with sin. And so it's going to be amazing to see how the people of God confessed and repented of their sin in a way that led to transformation, both personal sins and even corporate sins. And one way that Nehemiah shows us how to do that is through the confession of sin. It's the big theme throughout the book of Nehemiah. Now, we are not Catholics here. We believe that Jesus Christ is our high priest. We confess our sins through him to God the Father. But this idea of confession of sin is owning your sin before God. That we do that when we see first the holiness of God, and as a result, we see our sin all the more clearly. And so we don't respond by justifying our sin or, or explaining our sin away, but we own it and we fight and we contend against it. It's such a major theme in the book of Nehemiah that that's how Nehemiah begins in chapter 1 in his prayer that we'll see next week. And it's also the way that he ends the book in chapter 13. So you have this theme of, of confession of sin that literally bookends uh, the book. I'm also encouraged by that reality that after the, the walls are rebuilt, after the temple is reestablished and, and they're back, so to speak, that even in chapter 13, Nehemiah still has to call the people to repent. Like, just because you have things established doesn't mean that the struggle with sin goes away. But this is something that needs to be a regular rhythm of God's people. We'll be reminded of that. And then fourthly here, another thing that I think will be really significant and practical is this will remind us of how God loves using ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary work. That we see God's sovereign activity in raising up leaders to accomplish God's plan, God's way, by God's resources. I've already noted the fact that Nehemiah was just an ordinary guy in a secular position who had great leadership skills that God used to alter the history of God's people. And I truly believe that that's, that's what God wants to do with us today. That's what God wants to do with you today. That you may or may not change a nation, but God wants to use you to maybe change a neighborhood or to change the culture in your workplace, or to change your family, or to change your, your friend group. Uh, there are things that we're going to learn in, in Nehemiah's example of what godly 
competent, compassionate leadership is all about that will challenge us and help us. That we all need an example of what does leadership actually look like. And Nehemiah probably supplies the best example of that in perhaps all of the Bible. And so we need that picture for those of us who are our leaders in the workplace or your leaders in your home or your leaders in, in maybe your friend group or, or with, even within the church, both as something to aspire to or if you're not in a leadership position, these are things that you should follow in someone else. Now, this book is also realistic though. It's not that God raises up Nehemiah, gives him this task, and everything is smooth and easy. No, there is a crazy amount of opposition that Nehemiah has to lead through. There's opposition from outside of God's people, outside the wall, so to speak, but also inside, that that there is an internal threat that we're going to look at that had the potential of creating division and disunity that Nehemiah has to lead through with grace and with godliness. And Nehemiah is going to show us how to do that. And then the last reason that we're in this book is that Nehemiah will challenge us to have a passion for the glory of God. I think that we are going to be very much challenged anew as far as how we think about the glory of God and the place that the glory of God has within our own hearts and within our own church. This is something we see all throughout this book, but we're immediately confronted with it in these first couple of verses. If you notice here that Nehemiah gets this report from Jerusalem about both the condition of God's people, but also the condition of God's glory. He gets this report from his brother, Hananiah, that the walls of Jerusalem and and, and the gates have been burned down and have been destroyed. Now, this is most likely the result of what happened in Ezra chapter 4, with the rebuilding of the walls, uh, God's enemies asked the king of Persia to, to stop that, and of course he does. And so they were left vulnerable and exposed, and so the destruction of the walls took place. But here's, here's where I was, so, I was so stirred and convicted uh, of looking at Nehemiah's reaction to all of this. Look at verse 4 at what Nehemiah does. It says, As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I thought to myself, what? Like, why why is he so moved by this? These are events that were occurring 800 miles away from where Nehemiah currently was. Why is he so broken and he's mourning and he's crying and he's fasting and he's praying and he's eventually going to be moved to action? Well, it's because the walls of Jerusalem represented something much more significant than just the safety of God's people. And we need to be able to identify what that actually is or we're going to miss the significance of this book. For you who are married, you can probably relate to this, that you know, as you and your spouse are trying to figure out how to do a, a house project together, you're trying to do like a home improvement task, whether it's you know, replacing the tile in the bathroom or, or changing out some curtains. If you're like me and, and my wife, usually that brings about a, a healthy marital discussion, if you know what I mean. 
And that's largely because I'm not handy at all. Lindsay will be the first to admit that. I'm the first to admit that. It usually takes me twice as long to get a project done, even though I'm, I'm staring at YouTube and looking at all the steps. And so that, that creates some tension, uh, even within our marriage as we're thinking about different projects. But some of the frustration also comes about because I usually miss the significance of what the project represents for my wife. Like I think about changing out the curtains, for example. For me, I'm thinking, okay, great, yeah, this will this will help with the privacy of our home, right? We we don't want the neighbors to to look in and see me eating rise and roll donuts for the fifth day in a row. So we'll just kind of put these curtains up and and kind of save face. And I miss that the significance, though, for Lindsay, it's much more about privacy. It, it even has something to do with security. It has something to do with even beauty, that there's a, a theme and there's a culture of the home that she's trying to, to create. And sometimes I miss the significance of that. And I take it lightly, and it can even create some tension in our marriage. Well, I think something similar is going on here as it relates to what the walls of Jerusalem represent and what they symbolize, that if we miss it, we're going to miss the depth that's going on in this book. See, the walls of Jerusalem not only represented the strength of God's people, but it represented the strength with whom the people served. It represented God and his glory. Remember, the way that God put on display his worth and his magnificence and his strength and his glory was seen in the separation of his people from the other nations. And so these walls that were in ruins, the gates that were burned, that was, that was telling the other nations that God is weak, that God is vulnerable, that God is not in control. And so Nehemiah sees that, he gets news of that, and he is so moved with emotion and passion because he's seeing the walls being destroyed as, as something that is going against the advance of God's glory throughout the earth. And I was reading that and studying that, and I was so convicted because I thought to myself, Chris, when was the last time you were so moved with emotion about God's glory that you wept like Nehemiah? I thought to myself, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I've, if I've ever wept about God's glory. I don't know if I've ever been like so stirred up like Nehemiah, because God's glory wasn't advancing in the way that it should, whether in my own life or in other people's lives. And I was so convicted about that. It made me wonder, do we as a church have that kind of fervor and zeal for God's glory to go forth that when it's not, or when it's not being advanced in an effective way, that we're moved with emotion and passion like Nehemiah? So you think the challenge is, if you're like me, is that, man, sometimes I get more stirred up by things of this world than God's glory. Sometimes you get more stirred up about your kids or about a sports team or about work or about all these other things. And Nehemiah is going to convict us and challenge us. Are you most passionate for the glory of God to be advanced and to go forth both in your life and through the church and through this community? Because look, this is, this is a warning of what happens when God's people take God's glory lightly. That Nehemiah 9 is going to show us that the reason they're, they're, they're in captivity is because 
they weren't worshiping the glory of God. They were worshiping the created and these, all these other idols. See, the reason why God, I think, brings them back to Jerusalem is not to just build a physical wall, but I think that God is wanting to build a community of worshipers that are set ablaze for the glory of God. And I think that's what he wants to do in our church during this season. That for us to be reminded that really the greatest danger of God's people is not necessarily what happens outside of the walls, things happening out there, out in the world, but the greatest danger for God's people is what happens inside the walls and inside the walls of our own hearts when the glory of God is not set ablaze. And so I'm excited to kind of recenter our church, recenter my own heart on the glory of God demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to ask you as we close, just two questions here. I want to think through how do we, how do we apply this today? What, what, is, what are the walls of Jerusalem? What do they mean for us in 2020 on this side of the cross? And I was just wondering, you know, thinking about God's presence residing in the temple in the Old Testament, residing in a particular location. For us today, according to Ephesians 3, 10 and 17, God's presence resides in his people, both as individuals and even as the the church is gathered together. That God uses all kinds of things to display his glory, but one of the chief things he uses are the people of God. It's for us to live faithfully and obediently so that the world can see the glory of God on display. So the question is, is if the walls of Jerusalem represented that, then for us today, the the walls, uh, I think, refer to our own hearts. It refers to our own lives. So my question for you today is, what is the condition of your spiritual heart today? Where where are you as it relates to, to pursuing godliness and repenting of sin. Like, I wonder if, if maybe for some of us, you, you can relate to the end of verse 3, that, that the walls being broken down, the gates on fire, you'd say, man, that, that's how my spiritual life feels right now. That maybe because of lingering sin, maybe because of, of guilt and shame, maybe because of doubts or things going on in your life, you, you don't have a, a strong fortress of displaying the glory of God in your life, and you're saying, I feel like my life is in ruins with the Lord. And maybe that's where you are. I just want to ask that for you to kind of own that today. And my second question is, if that's true, what, what's your reaction to that? Like, what's your response to maybe having a, a sense of brokenness in your relationship with God? Because for Nehemiah, he was, he was so broken that it led him to action. And so for you to change, for you to be transformed, it, it starts with having a personal brokenness, to be bothered by maybe where you are spiritually, maybe the sin that's in your life, before God can do a work within you. And look, maybe you're saying to me this morning, Chris, I'm not even there. Like, I may have sin, I may, but I'm so callous to it that, that I'm, not, I'm not even close to being broken over it. I've got some sin issues that I've had for decades, Chris, and and I I don't even really feel all that bad. And I just want to say to you this morning, there's still hope for you today, even if you don't feel broken by your own sin like Nehemiah was. Because let me me just point out something that we're going to see in Nehemiah. A few hundred years from this point in history, Jesus Christ is going to come onto the scene. 
And just like Nehemiah, who was weeping over the, over the condition of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ is going to come, and he is also going to weep over the condition of Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is crying and he's weeping over the spiritual condition of Jerusalem that then leads him to action by getting up on a cross and dying for the sins of the world. And I want to encourage you with that this morning to just show you how committed God is for your transformation and for your reformation that for Jesus, who, who looks at the sins of his people, the sins really of his enemies, and he still goes to the cross in order to pay for that sin and in order for transformation to occur in our lives, that's how committed God is for you. That God's committed to doing a reformation that is much more significant than the reformation of the Jerusalem walls 2,500 years ago. That God wants to do a, a work in your own life that has ramifications of how you relate to God and how you grow spiritually. And look, I can't wait to see what God is going to do in the most significant rebuild of your life and my life. And that has to do with the spiritual maturity and being consumed with his glory and with his word.